Chapter Thirty of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Sage. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter Thirty: The Kingdom of Greatness, The Pilgrim, A Dream. Whatever a man like Hurstwood would be in Chicago, it is very evident that he would be but an inconspicuous drop in an ocean like New York. In Chicago, whose population still ranged about 500,000, millionaires were not numerous. The rich had not become so conspicuously rich as to drown all moderate incomes in obscurity. The attention of the inhabitants was not so distracted by local celebrities in the dramatic, artistic, social and religious fields as to shut the well-positioned man from view. In Chicago the two roads to distinction were politics and trade. In New York the roads were any one of a half hundred, and each had been diligently pursued by hundreds, so that celebrities were numerous. The sea was already full of whales. A common fish must needs disappear wholly from view, remain unseen. In other words, Hurstwood was nothing. There is a more subtle result of such a situation as this, which, though not always taken into account, produces tragedies of the world. The great create an atmosphere which reacts badly upon the small. This atmosphere is easily and quickly felt. Walk among the magnificent residences, the splendid equipages, the gilded shops, restaurants, resorts of all kind. Scent the flowers, the silks, the wines. Drink of the laughter springing from the soul of luxurious content, of the glances which gleam like faint light from defiant spears. Feel the quality of the smiles which cut like glistening swords and of strides born of place, and you shall know of what is the atmosphere of the high and mighty. Little use to argue that of such is not the kingdom of greatness, but so long as the world is attracted by this, and the human heart views this as the one desirable realm which it must attain, so long to the heart will this remain the realm of greatness. So long also will the atmosphere of this realm work its desperate results in the soul of man. It is like a chemical reagent. One day of it, like one drop of the other, will so affect and discolor the views, the aims, the desire of the mind, that it will thereafter remain forever dyed. A day of it to the untried mind is like opium to the untried body. A craving is set up which, if gratified, shall eternally result in dreams and death, aye, dreams unfulfilled, gnawing, luring, idle phantoms which beckon and lead beckon and lead, until death and dissolution dissolve their power and restore us blind to nature's heart. A man of Hurstwood's age and temperament is not subject to the illusions and burning desires of youth, but neither has he the strength of hope which gushes as a fountain in the heart of youth. Such an atmosphere could not incite in him the cravings of a boy of eighteen, but in so far as they were excited, the lack of hope made them proportionately bitter. 
He could not fail to notice the signs of affluence and luxury on every hand. He had been to New York before, and knew the resources of its folly. In part it was an awesome place to him, for here gathered all that he most respected on this earth—wealth, place, and fame. The majority of celebrities with whom he had tipped glasses in his day as manager hailed from this self-centered and populous spot. The most inviting stories of pleasure and luxury had been told of places and individuals here. He knew it to be true that unconsciously he was brushing elbows with fortune the livelong day, that a hundred or five hundred thousand gave no one the privilege of living more than comfortably in so wealthy a place. Fashion and pomp required more ample sums, so that the poor man was nowhere. All this he realized, now quite sharply, as he faced the city, cut off from his friends, despoiled of his modest fortune and even his name, and forced to begin the battle for place and comfort all over again. He was not old, but he was not so dull, but that he could feel he soon would be. Of a sudden, then, this show of fine clothes, place, and power took on peculiar significance. It was emphasized by contrast with his own distressed state. And it was distressing. He soon found that freedom from fear of arrest was not the sine qua non of his existence. The danger dissolved. The next necessity became the grievous thing. The paltry sum of thirteen hundred and some odd dollars set against the need of rent, clothing, food, and pleasure for years to come was a spectacle little calculated to induce peace of mind in one who had been accustomed to spend five times that sum in the course of a year. He thought upon the subject rather actively the first few days he was in New York, and decided that he must act quickly. As a consequence, he consulted the business opportunities advertised in the morning papers, and began investigations on his own account. That was not before he had become settled, however. Carrie and he went looking for a flat, as arranged, and found one in 78th Street, near Amsterdam Avenue. It was a five-story building, and their flat was on the third floor. Owing to the fact that the street was not yet built up solidly, it was possible to see east to the green tops of the trees in Central Park, and west to the broad waters of the Hudson, a glimpse of which was to be had out of the west windows. For the privilege of six rooms and a bath, running in a straight line, they were compelled to pay $35 a month, an average and yet exorbitant rent for a home at the time. Carrie noticed the difference between the size of the rooms here and in Chicago, and mentioned it. "'You'll not find anything better, dear,' said Hurstwood, "'unless you go into one of the old-fashioned houses, and then you won't have any of these conveniences.' Carrie picked out the new abode because of its newness and bright woodwork. It was one of the very new ones supplied with steam heat, which was a great advantage. The stationary range, hot and cold water, dumb waiter, speaking tubes, and call bell for the janitor pleased her very much. She had enough of the instincts of a housewife to take great satisfaction in these things. Hurstwood made arrangement with one of the installment houses where they furnished the flat complete and accepted fifty dollars down and ten dollars a month. He then had a little plate, bearing the name G. W. Wheeler, made, 
which he placed on his letter-box in the hall. It sounded exceedingly odd to Carrie to be called Mrs. Wheeler by the janitor, but in time she became used to it and looked upon the name as her own. These house details settled, Hurstwood visited some of the advertised opportunities to purchase an interest in some flourishing downtown bar. After the palatial resort in Adams Street, he could not stomach the commonplace saloons which he found advertised. He lost a number of days looking up these and finding them disagreeable. He did, however, gain considerable knowledge by talking, for he discovered the influence of Tammany Hall and the value of standing in with the police. The most profitable and flourishing places he found to be those which conducted anything but a legitimate business, such as that controlled by Fitzgerald and Moy. Elegant back rooms and private drinking booths on the second floor were usually adjuncts of a very profitable place. He saw by portly keepers, whose shirt fronts shone with large diamonds, and whose clothes were properly cut, that the liquor business here, as elsewhere, yielded the same golden profit. At last he found an individual who had a resort in Warren Street, which seemed an excellent venture. It was fairly well-appearing and susceptible of improvement. The owner claimed the business to be excellent, and it certainly looked so. "'We deal with a very good class of people,' he told Hurstwood. "'Merchants, salesmen, and professionals. It's a well-dressed class. No bums. We don't allow them in the place.' Hurst would listen to the cash register ring and watch the trade for a while. "'It's profitable enough for two, is it?' he asked. "'You can see for yourself if you're any judge of the liquor trade,' said the owner. "'This is only one of two places I have. The other is down in Nassau Street. I can't tend them both alone. If I had someone who knew the business thoroughly, I wouldn't mind sharing with him, in this one, and let him manage the other.' "'I've had experience enough,' said Hurstwood blandly, but he felt a little diffident about referring to Fitzgerald and Moy. "'Well, you can suit yourself, Mr. Wheeler,' said the proprietor. He only offered a third interest in the stock, fixtures, and goodwill, and this in return for a thousand dollars in managerial ability on the part of the one who should come in. There was no property involved because the owner of the saloon merely rented from an estate.' The offer was genuine enough, but it was a question with Hurstwood whether a third interest in that locality could be made to yield one hundred and fifty dollars a month, which he figured he must have in order to meet the ordinary family expenses and be comfortable. It was not the time, however, after many failures to find what he wanted, to hesitate. It looked as though a third would pay a hundred a month now. By judicious management and improvement, it might be made to pay more. Accordingly, he agreed to enter into partnership and made over his thousand dollars, preparing to enter the next day. His first inclination was to be elated, and he confided to Carrie that he thought he had made an excellent arrangement. Time, however, introduced food for reflection. He found his partner to be very disagreeable. Frequently he was the worse for liquor which made him surly. This was the last thing which Hurstwood was used to in business. Besides, the business varied. It was nothing like the class of patronage which he had enjoyed in Chicago. He found that it would take a long time to make friends. These people hurried in and out without seeking the pleasures of friendship. 
It was no gathering or lounging place. Whole days and weeks passed without one such hearty greeting as he had been wont to enjoy every day in Chicago. For another thing, Hurstwood missed celebrities, those well-dressed, elite individuals who lend grace to the average bars and bring news from far-off and exclusive circles. He did not see one such in a month. Evenings, when still at his post, he would occasionally read in the evening papers incidents concerning celebrities he knew, whom he had drunk a glass with many a time. They would visit a bar like Fitzgerald and Moyes in Chicago or the Hoffman House uptown, but he knew that he would never see them down here. Again, the business did not pay as well as he thought. It increased a little, but he found he would have to watch his household expenses, which was humiliating. At the very beginning it was a delight to come home late at night, as he did, and find Carrie. He managed to run up and take dinner with her between six and seven, and to remain home until nine o'clock in the morning. But the novelty of this waned after a time, and he began to feel the drag of his duties. The first month had scarcely passed before Carrie said, in a very natural way, "'I think I'll go down this week and buy a dress.' "'What kind?' said Hurstwood. "'Oh, something for streetwear.' "'All right,' he said, smiling, although he noted mentally that it would be more agreeable to his finances if she didn't. Nothing was said about it the next day, but the following morning he asked, "'Have you done anything about your dress?' "'Not yet,' said Carrie. He paused a few moments, as if in thought, and then he said, "'Would you mind putting it off a few days?' "'No,' replied Carrie, who did not catch the drift of his remarks. She had never thought of him in connection with money troubles before. "'Why?' "'Ah, well, I'll tell you,' said Hurstwood. "'This investment of mine is taking a lot of money just now. I expect to get it all back shortly, but just at present I'm running close.' "'Oh,' answered Carrie. "'Why, certainly, dear. Why didn't you tell me before?' "'It wasn't necessary,' said Hurstwood. For all her acquiescence, there was something about the way Hurstwood spoke which reminded Carrie of Druitt, and his little deal which he was always about to put through. It was only the thought of a second, but it was a beginning. It was something new in her thinking of Hurstwood. Other things followed from time to time, little things of the same sort, which in their cumulative effect were eventually equal to a full revelation. Carrie was not dull, by any means. Two persons cannot long dwell together without coming to an understanding of one another. The mental difficulties of an individual reveal themselves whether he voluntarily confesses them or not. Trouble gets in the air and contributes gloom, which speaks for itself. Hurstwood dressed as nicely as usual, but they were the same clothes he had in Canada. Carrie noticed that he did not install a large wardrobe, though his own was anything but large. She noticed also that he did not suggest many amusements, said nothing about the food, seemed concerned about his business. This was not the easy Hurstwood of Chicago, not the liberal, opulent Hurstwood she had known. The change was too obvious to escape detection. In time she began to feel that a change had come about and that she was not in his confidence. He was evidently secretive and kept his own counsel. She found herself asking him questions about little things. 
This is a disagreeable state to a woman. Great love makes it seem reasonable, sometimes plausible, but never satisfactory. Where great love is not, a more definite and less satisfactory conclusion is reached. As for Hurstwood, he was making a great fight against the difficulties of a changed condition. He was too shrewd not to realize the tremendous mistake he had made, and appreciate that he had done well in getting where he was. And yet he could not help contrasting his present state with his former, hour after hour, and day after day. Besides, he had the disagreeable fear of meeting old friends, ever since one such encounter which he made shortly after his arrival in the city. It was in Broadway that he saw a man approaching him who he knew. There was no time for simulating non-recognition. The exchange of glances had been too sharp, the knowledge of each other too apparent, so the friend, a buyer for one of the Chicago wholesale houses, felt perforce the necessity of stopping. "'How are you?' he said, extending his hand, with an evident mixture of feeling and a lack of plausible interest. "'Very well,' said Hurstwood, equally embarrassed. "'How is it with you?' "'I'm all right. I'm down here doing a little buying. Are you located here now?' "'Yes,' said Hurstwood. "'I have a place down in Warren Street.' "'Is that so?' said the friend. "'Glad to hear it. I'll come down and see you.' "'Do,' said Hurstwood. "'So long,' said the other man, smiling affably and going on. "'He never asked for my number,' thought Hurstwood. "'He wouldn't think of coming.' He wiped his forehead, which had grown damp, and hoped sincerely that he would meet no one else. These things told upon his good nature, such as it was. His one hope was that things would change for the better in a money way. He had carry. His furniture was being paid for. He was maintaining his position. As for Carrie, the amusements he could give her would have to do for the present. He could probably keep up his pretensions sufficiently long without exposure to make good, and then all would be well. He failed therein to take account of the frailties of human nature, the difficulties of matrimonial life. Carrie was young. With him and with her, varying mental states were common. Any moment the extremes of feeling might be anti-polarized at the dinner-table. This often happens in the best regulated families. Little things brought out on such occasions need great love to obliterate them afterward. Where that is not, both parties count two and two and make a problem for a while. End of chapter 30 Recording by Bob Sage